Today we're continuing our series through Philippians. We're moving into chapter 3 today, so let me encourage you to go ahead and open your pew Bibles or the Bibles you've brought with you today to Philippians 3, verse 1. We'll be talking about our confidence, our identity as a community, as a church. Last month, if you uh, read Christianity Today or, or a variety of news sources, you may have seen the headlines about a church in Minnesota who unveiled a new strategy in order to kind of reinvigorate their, their sense of mission and purpose as a community. And their hope was to plant a, a new church, a new worship service in the town of Cottage Grove, Minnesota. I guess it's kind of in the greater Twin Cities area. It's a suburb. And their hope was to start a new church plant that had new leadership, new programming that would be attractive to the young families who were starting to relocate uh, for job purposes into that particular community. And so to make that happen, the, the denominational leadership in that area located an existing congregation that they wanted to partner with. And it it just so happened that that existing congregation was uh, maybe 30 or 40 people comprised mostly of retirees. And they said, hey, why don't you come and be part of our our plan to start this new worship service, this new church, reaching out to young families. According to a local newspaper report, though, that plan had a bit of a catch to it. Said, uh, this is according to the newspaper source, the present members, most of them over 60 years old, were invited as part of this plan to worship somewhere else. A memo recommends that they would stay away from their home church for two years, then consult the new pastor they were bringing in about whether they could come back and attend their home church location. You don't fit our our new idea for this community, apparently. The the pastor hired... This is all true. You can't make this stuff up. The pastor hired to lead this initiative within his denomination said, it's a new thing with a new mission for a new target. And so for this to be truly new, we can't have the same core group of 30 people who are already here, meaning this congregation of mostly retirees. So apparently, to be part of this new community, their date of birth was being sort of the determining criteria. The basic message, again, that this this movement, this initiative sent was, we'd like to use your building, your space, your place in the community, but we're not so sure we want you to be part of it. Now, it's kind of amazing that someone would cook up a plan like that. It's pretty bold, pretty brash. But I think all of our communities, implicitly or explicitly, kind of run into this temptation to define ourselves with certain external markers. Now, most of us aren't as upfront about it, but we indeed congregate around the things that that we find similar, right? Around perhaps our age, 
perhaps our level of education, our theological tradition, our occupations. We have these boundaries within our human communities that help us to define who belongs here and also who doesn't belong here. Now, the the problem with defining community in that way is twofold. Now, certainly, one of the problems that that presents to a community is with the person who is pushed out, right? The person who is excluded from belonging to that community. But in addition to that, the only problem isn't with the person who's forced out, but defining community in terms of external markers also creates a problem for those who remain in the community. When you define yourselves over and against someone who doesn't belong, you have to constantly demonstrate your own proof of belonging to that community, right? Proof that you fit. And if your identity somehow down the road doesn't quite measure up, it isn't quite what we thought it was, then you are in danger of being an outsider, right? Of finding yourself on the outside looking in. It creates this great sense of internal anxiety within community. And so you you never can quite feel a, a true or certain sense that you belong. I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of anxiety in a group or in a community that you hoped to be part of, a place that you wanted to have that sense of belonging. I wonder if you've even experienced that sense of anxiety within this community at JCC. I feel quite certain there are probably lifestyles and ethnicities and incomes and personalities that probably find it difficult to feel like they belong here. And that probably comes down to what we have defined, again, implicitly or explicitly, intentionally or unintentionally. What have we created? What have we laid claim to that gives us that sense that we belong in this place? And that's not always an easy thing to to define or or to lay before ourselves clearly. But this morning I want us to consider, as we look at Philippians chapter 3, what is at the center of this community? And is what we've placed at the center, the the identity, what, what marks us out as a people, is it something that draws others in, invites them into a sense of belonging and knownness, and welcome, or is it something that creates anxiety and pushes out? If you turn with me then to Philippians chapter 3, see what, what Paul has to say about how the community of God's people is configured. Let me pray for us as we look into the scriptures. Jesus, we thank you that... This is your church, whether it's the building, more importantly, the people, the living body of Jesus Christ that is truly the church, Lord, it is all your possession. We pray that as we 
read your word to us. That you would help us to locate our center. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been moving through Philippians 1 and 2 in the past month and a half. And we've seen Paul laying in those first couple chapters the foundations for what a community of Christ-minded people is meant to look like. Paul's asked us, what does it mean for us to to imitate and to image the, the saving power of Jesus Christ in the way we share life together? And so Paul's been trying to present this this vision of his for what Christian community ought to be. But the reality is that there are always other alternatives available, other ideas about community that are being advanced in competition. And one of those alternatives in Paul's day uh, was a form of Christianity. It was something happening in and around the local churches that were beginning to pop up. But it was led by a group of people called the Judaizers. And we don't know that they were actually in Philippi, but they were in a number of the churches that Paul had helped uh, to support and raise up. And these Christian men and women, probably full of great intentions, in an effort to safeguard what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they retained all sorts of external markers that could sort of continue to demonstrate that you were committed to this way. Right? Things like the practice of circumcision, continuing to observe dietary laws, things that were bound up in, in Torah observance in Judaism. And so here, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul begins with a series of warnings about what happens in a community when, when their confidence and identity become wrapped up in these externalities. These other things. Philippians 3, 1. I'll start with the first six verses here. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evil doers, those mutilators of the flesh. Here he's thinking about circumcision in particular. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit. Who boast in Christ Jesus. And who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, Paul says. This is one vision of community that Paul is attempting to unpack. Let's see how Paul starts out in these first six verses. Verse 1, 
starts off speaking about calling them back to, reminding them of the centrality of joy. And this was the theme at the end of chapter 2 last week. Here again, Paul names joy as this, this key possession of the early Christian church. Because I think he understands that joy is, is a manner, is a way of expressing what we are confident in. Paul says, rejoice. Let me appoint you to the centrality of joy. Namely, rejoicing in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Expressing your confident hope in him. Right? Joy is a conviction that there is something good, something worth trusting, something in my present circumstances that I can rejoice in. And in verse 1, Paul says, we have that something in the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the center, that's the place of hope and confidence and rejoicing. And he starts there in verse 1 because as we'll see quickly in these next several verses... Too often the communities that we build, whether out there in the world or in here among the church, too often those communities are lured away from that central hope and joy. And when we become under stress, when things become difficult, we begin to lose that sense of identity. And instead we insert other things to help us feel secure community, external layers, other identity markers to help clarify who we are. And in verses 2 through 6, Paul speaks autobiographically about his own experience, his own life in a community like that. He describes what it felt like to belong to, even to be a prominent member among an externally defined community. And for for Paul, that community was was bound up in being born a Jew, trained as a Pharisee, and being a, a covenant member of the people, the children of God. And what's remarkable about Paul's story is not that he tried that and somehow failed, you know, was was excluded, was shunned from the community because he wasn't good enough. In fact, Paul was really, really good at living out of this place of external confidence. In verse 4 he says, Listen, if, if anyone could have a prime seat at the table in this particular kind of community, in, in first century Pharisaic Judaism, it was me, right? I was circumcised in just the right way. I had just the right parents. I was educated with all the best tutors. In respect to that kind of community, I was faultless. I was firmly on the inside. But one day, all of those external markers, all of Paul's self-confidence, collided with a different kind of community. A community predicated on on the resurrected lordship of Jesus. And he begins to, to transition and speak about that way of being in community in verses 7 through 11. 
But whatever were gains to me in that old way of life, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation even in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Verses 7 through 11 describe this this exchange, this shift that takes place in Paul's life. Sometimes we're tempted to, to cling to, to grasp onto things that we later discover were petty, insignificant. We wonder why we placed such value on them. But at the time, we were, we were convinced that, that if we let go of that thing, if we lost it, that, that we would be without form. We would be deficient. We would be shamed in some way. Get that, that sense here. In verses 7, 8, and 9, Paul says he spent half a lifetime clinging to these external confidences. What he calls a righteousness of my own. It it seemed inestimably important. It was was worth all the zeal Paul could possibly manufacture within himself to, to measure up to that standard, to measure up to the law, to be kept as part of that that community. But something happened to Paul. That that zeal, that desire to to cling to that thing drove Paul on the road to Damascus. He was on his way as an expression of that zeal, as a sense of his belongingness to that community, on his way to Damascus to arrest and most likely to execute these followers of Jesus. Jesus who had set aside the righteousness Paul speaks of here, who were worshiping this other other God, this, this lordship of Jesus, this crucified rabbi. But on the road to Damascus in Paul's zeal, he confronts quite literally the resurrected Jesus, who asks him, Paul, why are you persecuting And then he went to Damascus, right? He goes into the home of Ananias who lays hands on Paul and the scales, it says, fall from Paul's eyes. And in that moment, that righteousness of self, the one he had worked hard to create and to sustain and to maintain, felt less like an asset and more like a liability to Paul. An exchange was necessary. A move from external confidence to a confidence in something that does not originate, does not depend on me. 
He says, I now consider everything I used to have a loss. Paul says, when you weigh that out with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord, there's no comparison. In fact, he goes even further in verse 8. He says, all those things I used to be so proud of, things that I was sure marked out my identity and said, I belong here. Verse 8 says, I now consider skubano in Greek. Garbage is the, the NIV. But it's, it's actually a vulgar word in the first century Greek. It referred probably to these you know, not just trash that you would put in a nice Ziploc bag and sit out on the curb. These were like the, the putrid, rotting pieces of meat and other things that you would never eat yourself and you threw out on the street and the wild dogs fed themselves on. It's not a nice word. It's not a, a sanitary word. In fact, many translators have been tempted to put a four-letter word here in the scriptures. It's probably a a better rendering in terms of an equivalent. However you want to translate that, though, right? Paul's saying that's you would no sane person would go down to the street and pick this stuff up and put it on their lapel as a badge of righteousness and say, This is why I belong. Right? That would be crazy. Paul says that sense of righteousness, that sense of external confidence now repulses me. There's a shift in understanding. You may be getting tired of my Lord of the Rings illustrations. You know, I go back here from time to time. But Tolkien has right, all these insights into the human condition. And I think about how at the beginning of those books, right, as Frodo starts out on his journey, he discovers this ring of power that he's been given. And And Frodo sees that as his greatest asset. It's the thing that makes him special. It's what defines his place in the fellowship of of these friends that Gandalf gathers around him, right? He's the ring bearer. And so at the beginning of those novels, he grasps that ring tightly. right? Whenever he gets in a a tough spot, he slides the ring on his finger and, and it's his source of power and confidence. But as the books move forward, as that journey progresses, there's a recognition that the ring wasn't what he thought it was. It's actually a burden. There's there's a physical sense of heaviness to it. And as he goes along, he actually has to wear the ring around his neck by a chain. And he comes to understand that that ring that he thought held great power, is actually something that needed to be cast back into the fires of Mordor from where it came. But in order to do that, right, Sam and Frodo have to journey deep into that land of death and darkness and renounce its power to, to secure their freedom. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says, the community that I desire to be part of now is one that places me in fellowship with Jesus. Right? In Christ is where he wants to be. Not over here defined by his own righteousness. And so just like Jesus, 
Paul has to exchange his own place of privilege and righteousness to go down into an identification with Jesus in his death, in his humility. Paul's saying, I've learned to cast off all of of that external standing I could once lay claim to so that I can be claimed by the merits of Jesus, by the faithfulness of Jesus, by his righteousness. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings, even become like him in his death, so that somehow I will also attain to his resurrection. To be part of the community that is the church of Jesus is to follow Paul's example here. It's to redefine our identity in light of Christ's identity. It's to exchange whatever we think we have. Put aside whatever merit or privilege that could be afforded to us. And instead, invite Jesus to lay hold of us. To claim that through faith, Paul says. Faith means being drawn into the story of Jesus. This is a recurring idea in Paul's letters. Almost every letter, he talks about how we are meant to follow Jesus. Right? Through, through death, suffering, participation, but also with the confidence that we will participate in his exaltation, in his lordship. We can be people who endure humility, suffering, even death itself. Because our hope, our rejoicing is in the confidence that we are a community who belongs to the true Lord of heaven and earth. Paul says our confidence comes from that heavenly reality. Conclusion, let me share with you these last few verses today. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Paul expresses a heavenward, forward confidence and identity. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Where is our confidence? That's, that's Paul's central question in these verses. The, the beginning of chapter 3 is a, is a backward gaze. right? Paul looking at where he's come from, the community he's come out of. One that he has chosen to leave behind. And now, in verses 12 through 14, Paul's focus is decidedly future. It's forward. It's all about forward movement. See these phrases like, I press on. I strain toward what's ahead. Paul's saying, we don't define ourselves in terms of of who we are today, 
our identity, our confidence is relative to that kingdom which is coming, which is advancing, which is, is founded and rooted in the lordship and power of Jesus Christ, who now reigns in the heavenly realms. I'm moving that way. But to move forward, to grow confident in the lordship of Jesus, Paul says, we move forward, but that means we have to forget what's behind we have to let go of those familiar, those, those confident, sort of false, confident, secondary places of security. Right? Moving forward means leaving something else behind. When I read these verses, it, it makes me think about those rings you see sometimes on the playground. You know, the ones that hang kind of like gymnast rings. I'm, not, I'm too tall. I always scrape the ground. I can't actually do them. But when I read these verses, I imagine, you know, one of those kids, our kids are pretty good at these, and if you've seen a kid go across one of these courses, they develop a certain technique. Right? To, to do this well, as you swing forward, right, you have to let go of the ring behind you and grab the ring that's in front of you. Right? You have to, to constantly be letting go in order to let that momentum carry you forward to the next thing, to the next the next step. But if you've ever seen a kid either get scared or get tired on those rings, right? what happens as soon as they're moving forward and they won't let go of that rear ring? Right? They, pretty quickly they get stuck. Right? The inertia dies and they just sort of have to hang there and it's really hard to get going forward again. Usually they just sort of drop off and start over. Paul says in his confidence, in his hope, in his joy, he is reaching out, always endeavoring to go forward toward that kingdom and that call of Jesus. What it means to identify more fully with him. Which means he is constantly needing to let go of his past. Right? And that would be a word to us as well. In order to embrace a new identity, a new center a new confidence in our community of who we are gathered around Jesus. We have to let go of the shame that might characterize us, of, of a false sense of standing or security that might, might be tempting to reach out and take hold of. We have to move forward. That takes trust. It takes faith. But I love what Paul says in verse 12. He says, as, as he reaches out to take hold of that reality in confidence to lay hold of his identity in Jesus Christ, he discovers that that, that forward movement is actually in concert with. It's in, in a continuation of how Jesus Christ has already first taken hold of him. Right? As we reach out, there's someone else already pulling us toward himself. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The same idea is echoed in verse 14 where he says, I'm, I'm simply pressing forward toward, into, deeper into the thing God has called me heavenward for in Jesus. Right? It's the call of God pulling Paul. It's the hand of Christ gripping Paul. Drawing him into this place of community. 
And so it's clear then that even though Paul is determined and he has this forward confidence, that his place in the community of Jesus Christ is not predicated on his accomplishments. It's not predicated on, on how well, how strong he is, or even the sacrifices he makes to get there. Paul belongs. You and I belong to the community of Jesus Christ because he has taken hold of us. Because the voice of God has said it is so. He has called us heavenward. And so that means the church never was and never will be our community. It's not ours to define. It's not ours to guard the boundaries of. As soon as we start to do that, we begin to denigrate and destroy what the church is. The church is a community that God has initiated and gathered around one single thing. And that is the lordship of his son, Jesus. May we continue to move forward. May we lay hold of what it means to be a people who are in Christ Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would grow ever more confident even to be able to boast, as Paul does, in you, Jesus. Even in your weakness, even in your role as a servant of others, even when it means powerlessness. Lord, that we would rejoice and have clearly in mind, clearly fixed before us, where you sit in the heavenly realms, that you are the one and only Lord who has power to save. And you have done so with great love. And you say we belong to you. You call us your own. So as we are laid a hold of by the merits of Christ Jesus. May we be a place and a people where others are drawn to you being lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.